On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. Funding for the E-Series is provided by the Dr. John A. Lusk Fund for Hospice and Palliative Care Education. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today we continue this installment of the E-Series with Exploring Our Community, Distilling Health Disparities a conversation between CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, and Curtis Holloman, Executive Director for the Foundation for a Healthy High Point. Let's get started. Trent joined Hospice of the Piedmont in 2013 as the organization's third CEO since its founding in 1981. He has 25 years in healthcare leadership. Most recently, he led the organization in navigating a successful merger with Hospice of Randolph. Thanks for being with us today again, Trent. Thanks, Ryan. Curtis Holloman joined the foundation in January 2021 and serves as the executive director. He comes to the foundation with 20 years of philanthropic experience working with communities to address conditions that influence health. Prior to joining the foundation, Curtis served as as a senior advisor and senior director of grants and programs for the Foundation for a Healthy St. Petersburg during its startup. Curtis was the deputy director for for two Robert Wood Johnson national program offices, including the local funding partnerships based at the Health Research Education Trust at the New Jersey Hospital Association and Southern Rural Access Program based at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Penn State College of Medicine. He served as the health director for both Scotland County and Sampson County Health Departments and started his career working with a group of community uh, rural health clinics in Robson County. He earned his MBA at Temple University, an MA in political science at Appalachian State University, and a BA in Public Administration and Political Science at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. As a North Carolina native, Curtiv is excited about the opportunity to return home and work locally in the greater High Point area to improve health and wellness. Thank you for being with us today, Curtis. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you very much. So I know the two of you have much to talk about, so let's just jump right into this conversation. You can take it from here, Trent. Thanks, Ryan. Curtis, first of all, welcome back to North Carolina and uh, a heartfelt welcome uh, to High Point. Um, We're so lucky to have you here in our community. Um, You know, as we sort of jump into our conversation today, I think it would be important to give folks who are watching and listening to this um, a brief overview of what the Foundation for a Healthy High Point actually does. Good, good, good. Well, thank you, Trent. And I'm very excited about this conversation today. And I just wanna say um, so many people have been welcoming and inviting. Um, it's been a really good transition here in relocating to, um, to, to High Point. So I just wanted to kind of thank you for an opportunity to, to, to uh, participate in your E-series here. Um, I think um, the foundation for a healthy High Point is what we call in the business of philanthropy, um, a health legacy um, or health conversion foundation. It came about in 2013 with the sale and merger of the High Point Regional Hospital with UNC Health System. 
And then most recently, back in 2018, there was another realignment or merger with Wake Forest um, and um, the hospital here. So as a result of those transactions, um, dollars were set aside to establish an endowment. Um, and um, that would benefit health of the community um, as well. So that's a bit of kind of the, um, the technical aspect of, of, of who we are and what we are. Um, we have a board that governs our activities um, and we make um, grant investments in the community that impacts wellness and health. And I'm happy to talk about some of the work that we're doing um, and particularly some of the planning and, and the movement and the changes of the foundation over time. Yeah, so thank you for that um, really nice introduction to the foundation and the work uh, that it is doing and that you are embarking on now. Um, Curtis, I, I'd like to go back just a little bit. Um, Ryan uh, mentioned that you were uh, a public health director in both Sampson and Scotland counties um, in, at some point uh, a little further back in your career. Um, but, you know, this is a conversation about health disparities. These are, these are things that mm -hmm. we've been sort of following um, and learning about over the last several weeks. And I'm really curious if you might be able to share a little bit about your experience as a public health director and what you saw play out related to health disparities, particularly in rural North Carolina. You know, there are, there are parts of our region that are very rural, even here in the middle of the Piedmont Triad. Yeah, Trent. And when I listen to that introduction by Ryan, it's like I, I realize I've been around for a while. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, I mean, when I first graduated from Appalachian way back when it, it seems like um, I was lucky to sort of fall into uh, Robeson County and do some work with some folks who were building and developing um, a, a group of community health centers and rural health clinics. Um, now we refer to them as uh, uh, FQHCs, federally qualified health centers. Um, and I, you know, there I was able to just kind of learn the connection between clinical primary care services and then what's going on in the community. Um, as you know, and folks who know Robinson County is very rural. Um, you've got three different uh, you know, populations there, majority populations, um, the largest number of Native Americans um, east of the Mississippi, uh, but the majority of them reside in Robeson County. You have a, a very underserved African-American community and a very rural white um, work farming community at the time when I was there. So we had a playground in which to kind of take on medical services. We would recruit doctors to come in uh, and work with us uh, through national programs that, that gave us access to doctors. But we also just immediately saw the connection between the community and what's happening in communities versus what our doctors and our physicians are seeing in, um, in the clinic. And that for me sort of set this understanding of, you know, this was back in the, the, the early 90s, you know, when it was all about access, it was about medical and clinical services. And we were just starting to think about social determinants of health. We were just starting to think about we need to do more if we want to prevent 
um, poor health outcomes for individuals and for the community, we needed to do more than just treat disease and sickness. Mm -hmm. um, so when I finished that work, I was really uh, fortunate um, at a very young age to become, uh, uh, to be appointed the county health director in, in Sampson County and then eventually in Scotland County and sort of moved up the road up 95 a little bit into Clinton. Um, they're working for a great group of people. I can see all of them now in my head. They took this kid uh, with some ideas and some energy um, and really allowed us to kind of look at public health and start shaping public health um, in a way that would be more responsive to people. I think that's one of the things that I wanted to do there. And when you talk about the disparities at that particular time, North Carolina was very focused on infant mortality. We were very focused on um, low birth weights. Um, there was such a disparity between what was happening in other areas of our country, but we were doing just as bad as third world countries, you know, and underdeveloped countries. We've made some improvement over the, the years and there's still areas uh, in Guilford and other places where we, we need to do even more. But that was how we really started focusing on disparities there um, and, and did a lot of work around that. Um, Trent, we also saw the influx of immigrant community, right? And our farm workers coming into the country. Um, in Sampson County, we had the, the pork industry. Um, so we also, the issue of access, you know, how do we, how do we include those residents, particularly when it comes to communicable diseases, it comes to, you know, infectious diseases that impacts all of us. You know, we know with COVID, there's no borders uh, to these issues. So we, we did a lot in terms of how do we work with that population and that community. Um, and just to list a couple other things, you know, maternal care coordination, um, you know, African-Americans and, and, and um, in, in, in non-whites, um, we were just seeing such a disparity in terms of access. So those were some of the early disparities that we focused on in the health department back yeah. in the early 90s. What's so interesting is so many things that you talked about, uh, you talked about low, uh, you talked about infant mortality, um, you talked about infectious disease, which generally is um, applicable more to an adult health population. So you're really talking about a lifespan um, so these are issues that begin in some cases at a very early age and then may continue for some populations um, disproportionately for decades, I suspect. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's definitely fair. And that's what I, you know, I always go back to where I started with the community health centers and, and we had that life cycle approach and in, in public health, we have it um, as well. And it, you know, one of the things that we know and from, um, from the work that we've done, the research supports that if we can start early in that life cycle, right? If we can work with, um, and that was why we focus on infant mortality, prenatal care, care coordination, child, child care coordination, it's because we knew that if we could start early working with families that didn't have the resources, um, of, 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 of families that were doing well. If we started working with those young mothers, we started working with, with those families and work with kids between the ages of zero to three, mm -hmm. um, that when they become five years old, they're ready to learn. And we can see in the life cycle, you can, you can sort of follow that trend, okay? If we have kids who are ready to learn when they start school, 
They have the emotional support at home. Uh, one of the big indicators of being ready is having been read to, you know, kids, you know, their parents or the guardians read to them, um, they excel. And it's not just kind of, you know, with good grades, their, their emotional, their well-being is improved. Yeah. And I, I just, I like to make this point because when you speak about the life cycle, if you just kind of think about this visual, you get a young African-American kid, right? If they're not ready when they enter into uh, first grade, for a number of reasons. They haven't had the family support, right? They haven't had um, the reading, the learning, the food insecurity, sure. um, the trauma, the trauma that goes along with um, um, not having these things that a lot of us just take for granted that makes us very healthy people. So, you know, they just start out behind. Mm -hmm. So you'll get the problems in school, paying attention, they fall behind. Next thing you know, you're in school suspension, you know, then you're suspended from school, expelled from school. Then some of these kids go on to get in trouble with law enforcement. So, you know, you're in, you know, jail and in prison. So that's part of addressing issues early in the life cycle can prevent what we call this, um, this prison pipeline, so to speak, mm -hmm. that you hear a lot of us talk about in the, in the African-American community and low-income communities in general. So I think, you know, I've heard a few things that you said that are really key. It's developing responsive solutions, right? Um, it's, it's understanding the needs um, of the communities that are, that are perhaps disproportionately underserved or, or disproportionately represented. Um, there are many factors, as we've learned over the weeks, as I've learned just in my own reading, um, that really affect affect these populations. You have, as you, as you noted, a prison pipeline, right? That, that term. Um, we have uh, poverty, food insecurity. Um, there are issues of systemic racism, for example. All of those things sort of are social in nature. So these are these sort of social determinants of health. We talk a lot about that um, we hear a lot about that, I think, now in, in the mainstream media more than we probably ever have. But that's what you're talking about. You're talking mm -hmm. about social determinants of health and how they affect health, health outcomes. Might you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I think, and when I look back, because um, I, I just had a birthday, so I'm kind of very reflective these days. And Happy I, belated birthday. Thank you very much. So it, it causes you just to be sort of reflective and like, you know, what has changed? And one of the things, the conversation back in the late 80s, um, as I um, sort of joined the, the profession, the workforce, um, you know, we do see now, as you've pointed out, this conversation about equity, you know, so it's like disparities or preventable disparities. Um, now we're looking at, you know, issues of equity. Um, and I think with equity, we're talking about the question, mm -hmm. um, do you have the opportunity to excel and the opportunity to experience good health? and healthcare and access to those systems. So I'm really delighted because you, that's the question that we're asking now. We're moving into, back in the day, it was more like, you know, a service, you know, providing a service and you know, coming into the building to provide a service too. And we had uh, that going on. Now the conversation is more external. What can the community do? And what in the community do we need to make sure that um, you know, access to, to good health care is 
accessible, it's more equitable. Mm -hmm. Because when you start this conversation about social determinants, um, and I, I like the term social influencers, Social determinant is such a such a such a public health kind of data term, but and in, in, in the medical profession, you hear medical people talk about social. Um, um, uh, you know, they use other terms to to, dis, to describe this here. But social influencers, if you think about all the conditions that's going to impact um, a, a better health uh, of 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 a person uh, and a community. And I think the conversation we're having today is more about that and it's less about the clinical care. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and Trent, I wanted to point, and, and I know you know this too, that if you look at what influences the outcome of individual health mm -hmm. and the health of a community, there are a number of factors that we can look at. For example, health behavior, right? You can, you know, you know, that's whether or not that's diet and exercise, uh, which I need to do more of that. I have to change my behavior <laughs> to do more of that. But you also have, you know, we've, we've had a history of tobacco use and we've seen how, you know, cancers and health has improved and cost of health care as we have, as less people um, choose to, to smoke and use tobacco products. Alcohol and drug use. You know, even our behaviors, if you think about COVID right now, if we wear a mask, if we keep our distance from people and we're washing our hands, those behaviors can help us live longer. So if you look at the factors like health behaviors, and then you start to look at clinical care, what happens basically in the doctor's office, in the medical office, you know, and access to that and the quality of care you get there, that accounts for a part of um, the, the, what influences health outcomes. And, and just two other factors I'll mention, social and economic factors. Mm -hmm. This is the category that accounts for 40% of our health uh, and health outcomes as individuals and as a community. And these are issues where you're talking about education, you're talking about employment, income, poverty, People who can earn a livable wage, we know that they are healthier and our society is better for it. Family and social support. Um, these are sort of the wraparound services outside of the clinic and the medical office. These things are important. And of course, community safety, you know, violence. Do we have, uh, you know, law enforcement? Do we have other uh, efforts in our community that keeps us uh, safe and healthy? And I'll mention the fourth um, um, factor, and that is physical environment, okay? Drinking water, housing is a very important piece of that. And of these four factors, the one um, that accounts for the most in terms of improving our health and our health care and changing the outcomes is certainly social and economic factors and health behaviors. The one that accounts for the least uh, of course, the physical environment, you know, drinking water, those things like that, housing. But the other one that a lot of people are surprised about is the clinical care. It mm -hmm. only accounts for 20% of improving the health of individuals and communities. So we can go to doctors, we can go to emergency rooms, we can have the best system there. We're only going to improve or protect the health for only about only 20% of, of, of us. Right. You know, it's interesting. I've worked in healthcare for over 20 years, and I think I've 
long understood um, that uh, that life happens outside of a healthcare setting, and 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 really these social influencers are really life. Uh, these are the <laughs> factors that influence the way we live, the way we go about living, and and it makes sense that all of those things really. Um, have a tremendous impact greater than the than the clinical care that we're receiving on our health and well-being. So, uh, you know, we talked a little, we've talked about health equity and, you know, oftentimes I think people may think about equity and equality as the same. Can we have a brief conversation about that? Um, sure. Is there a difference? Yeah, yes, yes, there is. And actually, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, particularly as we reflect back over the past 12 months, I mean, you know, which has just been horrific. But, but Trent, also what we've seen in the past um, 12 months, I think a lot of people have in a different way, not just you and I who live and breathe and work in this environment for so many years, but I think the average person have really seen how a pandemic, you know, and the disparities of that, all right, can impact, uh, can impact a neighbor and can make a difference in, in, in terms of, you know, life and death as well. So I, you know, I like this, um, and, and I think the conversation about equity and health equity in particular is just um, unbelievable. I, I think even, you know, 10 years ago, I would not have thought that, <laughs> that we could have such conversations. And, and that is very hopeful, you know, as we're moving forward. And, and I think when you look at uh, equity versus uh, equality, um, equality is, is that, you know, you and I can have the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you um, have access to a doctor. Um, I have access to a doctor. We both have, you know, income that can sustain us and our families as well. But the difference, and I'll, I'll make it kind of personal here, Trent, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure, you, please. You, yeah, you as a white male mm -hmm. and me as a black male, we're both North Carolina boys, right? We're born and raised here. But, you know, it's all about where we work, live, and play location. Mm -hmm. So you grow up in one environment, I grow up in another one. So our lives, we just have different life experiences. Sure. So now here in Guilford County, okay, in High Point, we go to the doctor's office and we have this, the same level of services. There is a need to kind of look at, for some folks, <clears throat> we need different tools, right? We need a different um, approach or understanding. There's a cultural difference. Mm -hmm. When I go to my doctor, they speak a different language. Sometimes I have to translate or I go to a doctor who really fully understands me. Yeah. And, and all of us do that. And I think these are certain aspects that relate to, to equity uh, and equality. So we can have access to these services, but some of us um, need different tools because even with that access, there's a disadvantage. So you may need different resources. You may need different tools or methods. Uh, another example is your Spanish-speaking individual. So you show up, let's say they go to the same doctor that you and I go to, they need, they need translation, they need language services, okay? There's some folks, they need transportation to get there. So when we are planning and looking at our community, 
we need to take into account. And I think that's on a very simple level, that's what this equity look is all about. So we can have equal access, um, but equity means the equal uh, opportunity and the tools that we need so that we can uh, achieve the same level of health care. Thank you for joining us for part one of our discussion, exploring our community, distilling health disparities between Trent and Curtis. Join us next time as we conclude this conversation, exploring how community-based support can help create solutions to health disparities and help facilitate upstream change. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.